Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books of Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Today we're joined by Benjamin Armstrong, Lieutenant Commander in the U.S. Navy and the editor of two books on naval strategy and thought, 21st Century Mahan, Sound Military Conclusions for the Modern Era, and 21st Century Sims, Innovation, Education, and Leadership in the Modern Era. Both books have been well received by the naval history and strategic theory communities, as they represent attempts to highlight the intellectual legacy and timelessness of these two extremely influential flag officers. Now, word disclosure here for everyone. I've, I've known Lieutenant Commander Armstrong, or BJ, uh, for several years, since his days pursuing the master's degree through the Norwich University online program. And a disclaimer, the thoughts that Lieutenant Commander Armstrong expresses in this interview are his own and do not in any way reflect the policies or opinions of the Defense Department or the United States Navy. That said, BJ, thanks for taking the time to join us at New Books. Thank you so much for having me on board. I appreciate the invitation. Hey, it's great to have you, believe me. Uh, I always feel proud of bringing forward people I've worked with along the way, and uh, you know, you're no exception there. You know, our last web interview gave us a chance to talk with Colonel Ty Sedouli about the relevance of military history at West Point. You know, if I can, I'd like to hit you with the same question about the Naval Academy. You know, I'm, I'm interested because there is this trend, I think, in higher education to put more emphasis these days on STEM programs, that being science, technology, education, and mathematics programs. And, of course, Naval Academy would seem, I mean, at least superficially, I think, be one of those places that would trend more towards that way. I want to ask you to affirm just how deep does the academy treat history, especially military history? Uh, so my experience with the Naval Academy is 16 years on now. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a graduate of uh, what we call Canoe U there on the Severn River, mm-hmm. and uh I'm a history, I had a his, got a history major while I was there, mm-hmm. but it's been quite some time since I was physically there, though I'll be going back soon. Um, in my experience, you know, the, the Naval Academy is an engineering school. Uh, I have a Bachelor of Science degree in history because the core uh, courses are so numerous and so heavily weighted towards engineering and hard sciences that even a history major got a Bachelor of Science instead of a Bachelor of Arts. Um, now, the, that 
the reality is this is very common throughout naval history. Mm-hmm. Our, our naval history is replete with the focus on the technical within the officer corps. Right. Um, and so it's not unexpected that the Naval Academy is still that way to this day. Uh, it was reaffirmed in the, in the 60s and the 70s uh, during the, the kind of reign of Hyman Rickover as the head of naval reactors uh, when he very much um, helped to force the Naval Academy into a very STEM-heavy mindset. Mm-hmm. That being said, part of the core curriculum does include a uh, naval history course, uh, a, a what used to be called Western Civ course. Um, uh, it also includes uh, courses in government from the political science department um, and uh, language courses for many of the majors are required, uh, as well as a professional um, group of courses that are, are called the leadership and ethics courses mm-hmm. that tend to focus on naval law, naval leadership, and the ins and outs of, of what it's going to mean for the young officers when they first reach the fleet to, to be leading sailors and Marines. And much of that focus is uh, what would traditionally be seen as, you know, almost kind of philosophical humanities type study right. as well. So uh, the, the liberal arts, the humanities are certainly a part of what is taught at the Naval Academy. Uh, in fact, there's a number of the, the magazines, I believe U.S. News and World Report, at one point classified the Naval Academy as one of the top five liberal arts schools in the country. Right. Uh, from what I understand, that, that ruffled the feathers of a number of the engineers uh, who work there, who don't <laughs> see themselves as a liberal arts school. Right. Uh, but it, it does go to show that the, the curriculum is broad. Um, and also, from my understanding, and this is just kind of hearsay evidence, um, the history department in particular at the academy does really well when it comes time for students to be picking their electives. Um, mm-hmm. Many of the midshipmen, whether they're going to be future naval officers or future Marine Corps officers, they, they get from day one, from the uh, boot camp experience that they have during plebe summer, that history is an important part of our profession and what we do. Right. Uh, and so they do tend to head in that direction when it comes time to picking their electives. Well, it sounds that last part especially, there's a strong legacy component, I mean, or a legacy affiliation for history within the academy itself, which, you know, would be expected with a military service academy, I would think. Uh, what about in the Navy overall? I mean, about maybe let's, let's call it the post-graduate experience within the Navy. Is there a, a, a strong or is there now a stronger methodological and intellectual commitment to the discipline, you think, or not? I have to say that in my experience, there has not been. Mm-hmm. Um, when, I, when I got my master's degree in military history, I was a flight instructor uh, teaching uh, new naval aviators, or not yet naval aviators, to fly helicopters down in Pensacola, Florida. And when I tried to get the Navy to help pay for my master's degree, I was told by someone at the Bureau of Personnel that the only reason the Navy thinks you should study history is if you're going to teach it at the academy and you don't have orders there. Um, so, so I did not get the, the Navy's help in studying for my master's degree. Likewise, when I began pursuing my PhD, the Navy wasn't a whole lot of help there either. Uh, I was lucky enough that the program I'm studying with at, at King's College London, the War Studies Department, 
got approval from the Veterans Affairs Administration uh, for the GI Bill to cover my study. So, um, but that's not a Navy program. That's me, you know, using my own personal benefit to uh, my earned benefit to uh, to pursue my studies on my own. Right now, that that's big Navy. On a very personal level, the commanding officers that I have worked for and the officers I've worked with have been very supportive. Um, they have found ways to help me, you know, take leave when I need to and take the time when I need to to get my studies done um, and, and go to conferences and even present papers and things like that. And uh, I've worked with public affairs officers who have been very open and supportive of my publishing and my pursuit of kind of expanding professional historical knowledge in the Navy. So, you know, the, the wild big Navy, the bureaucracy, the administrative system may not be very supportive. Um, I recently was talking to a professor up at the War College who told me that his boss told him uh, that he didn't understand why he was doing all this history. We don't do that here. And that's at the Naval War College. Um, so anyway, the big Navy may not be that supportive, but there are lots of individuals in leadership positions who are very supportive. Right, right. Well, that makes your books all the more interesting, I think, because you're really mining some of the Navy's, I'm not going to call it formative, but maybe we should call it formative experience. I mean, when we talk about the modern Navy, we have to begin with Alfred Thayer Mahan, and of course, by extension, William Sims. And here is, as you present in these, these two books, here are um, two critical, very influential historical figures writing at a moment in the past that nevertheless has relevance and significance for, I would think, naval officers and the larger naval community, uh, both in terms of operations but also in terms of philosophy. How did you decide to approach this project, and, and what made you choose the essays that you've selected? So the the project, the the Mahan book, was the first book that I did, and that project was born actually while I was pursuing that master's degree with uh, with Norwich University, right. and I I took a seminar on military thought and theory, and my instructor was Dr. Tony Echeverria, who also teaches up at the Army War College and is the editor of Parameters right now. You know, your, your listeners, I'm sure, all know of him and his books on Clausewitz and military strategy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did a seminar paper comparing Mahan and Corbett. You know, I was that stereotypical Navy guy <laughs> who thought he was doing something new and interesting that everybody has always done. Right. Um, and I, to be honest, I did not do particularly well on that paper. And, and Dr. Echevarria took me apart pretty well um, on that paper. And I came to the realization that if I was going to take this pursuit of naval history and naval strategy seriously as an officer, I really had to get my head wrapped around this Mahan guy and move beyond kind of the lecture notes and the stereotypical way that he is taught. And so uh, I had a, you know, I, I went, went on to another set of orders, got busy with my life. I ended up looking down the barrel of what was going to be a long deployment, and I ended up taking my e-reader and loading as much of the free Alfred Thayer Mahan, you know, uh, Project Gutenberg books and, and things like that onto my e-reader as I could right. as I went on this deployment. 
And I, I, you know, when I'd go to the gym on the ship and ride the bike or whatever, I would take my e-reader with me and I would read my hand and kind of history nerd out. And I ended up coming to this conclusion, and it's, it's something that's very similar to what uh, John Sumita wrote in his book, Inventing Grand Strategy and Teaching Command, that Mahan is not completely understood because no one actually reads what he wrote. You know, they read the influence of sea power upon history if we're lucky. Well, if they, if they in reality, it, right, yeah. That's what I was, yeah. In reality, they probably read the introduction in the first chapter, and that's probably it. And then they go read, you know, the chapter in Makers of Modern Strategy, or they go read a, a journal article supposedly summarizing the hand for us. But these all focus on that one book. And over the course of his writing and thinking career, he published almost 300 articles, op-eds, letters to the editor, reviews, as well as more than a dozen books. So the idea that everything can be encapsulated in the first book that he ever published. You know, intellectually, I came to the, the realization that that's a, kind of a ridiculous statement. Mm-hmm. You know, this wasn't like Clausewitz, where he, you know, on war is the sum of his knowledge, right? He wrote it at the end of his life. He died before he finished it. Um, the Influence of Sea Power Upon History was written at the start of Mahan's yeah. writing and thinking career. So in reading all of these other works, all of these essays, I came to the realization that some of them, particularly the ones he wrote kind of for a general audience, for magazines like Harper's or the National Review in Great Britain, um, they, they are easier to read than much of his book-length work is, which is, you know, paragraphs that run on for three pages. Right, and, very archaic writing style. Yes, and then, he, you know. he himself admitted in his autobiography that he felt like he had to caveat everything and explain everything, and as a result, he had sentences that run on for half a page and, and you know, it's, a, it's an English major's diagramming nightmare, and it's really hard to read. Sounds like a first-year grad these, student, in a way. <laughs> in many ways, yeah. And, uh, but many of these articles that he wrote for, for magazines or for public affairs journals, they're, they're shorter. They're written for a lay audience instead of a professional naval or history audience. Um, and they read so much easier, and he kind of gets to a point better. He likely had some editorial help from the editors of these magazines as well, which, you know, from my own experience, I am usually in desperate need of some editorial help when I write. So I understand that. So I found some of these articles that I thought seemed, A, readable, right? You know, they, they presented well. But B, they jumped out at me as being particularly relevant to some of the the military and international relations challenges that we face today, you know, entering the 21st century. Right. Um, and it was that idea of combining the relevance of Mahan's other writing, besides just defining what sea power is, mm-hmm. taking that relevance and matching it up with pieces that were, that were more readable than he is kind of known for. Um, and that's how I went about selecting the essays that went into this book. Okay. Okay. Well, what about Sims? I mean, Sim, Admiral Sims's place, William Sims, is um, as an intellectual is really less remembered. I mean, people think of him in the context of the blockade during the First World War, the convoy system. Uh, they don't think of him as being a Pulitzer awarded author for his work, which he was, as you indicate. 
what ideas should Sims be remembered for? And, and how did you approach yes. Sims? Sims? Sims was a... Where, where Mahan was the labor of intellectual um, pursuit for me, Sims was kind of more of a labor of love. So when the Mahan book came out, and it, and it did pretty well, the press was happy with how it sold, the reviews were very kind, um, and it seemed to be very well received, the press came back to me, the Naval Institute Press, and said, you know, okay, so what do you want to do next? Um, and I hadn't even thought about that, to be quite frank, but I had been invited to uh, Navy Warfare Development Command, did a conference uh, for junior leaders called the Junior Leader Innovation Symposium. Um, and they invited me to come give a talk to a room full of about 300 junior officers and non-commissioned officers in the Navy down in Norfolk at, at the, you know, where the fleet is based to give a talk on innovation in the Navy and, and the his, some of the history of innovation in the Navy. And I, you know, I, I knew Sims' story of the development of continuous aim fire as a lieutenant, as a junior officer, when he, you know, almost single-handedly revolutionized the way battleships fought. Right, the gun doctor. As a, right. The gun doctor, right? The continuous aim fire and, and how he developed that idea and that, that procedure for gunner. And so I told that story at the, at the conference, and it was very well received. Everyone really enjoyed it. it I mean, it's a great story of innovation and of overcoming the, the stagnant military bureaucracy that sometimes exists. Mm-hmm. And so after telling that story, it wasn't long after that that the press came to me and said, hey, what do you want to do next? And Singe was obvious. Because I knew that he had written a number of articles for proceedings, uh, and I'd read about half of them at that point. So I went and I read everything that he had written, including, as you point out, you know, he, he wrote a book, mm-hmm. The Victory at Sea, which is kind of part memoir of his experience as the naval commander in World War I, and uh, part, you know, straight-up history of that, particularly of the Battle of the Atlantic, of the anti-submarine campaign. If I can, um, if I can interrupt here and point out to our listeners as well, I mean, it seems as memoir slash uh, history, I mean, it's, it stands up there alongside Pershing's uh, recollections of the First World War as you know, a literary work, but also as a historical work. And I, I would recommend that listeners who are interested in Sims and, and naval affairs do take a look for this book. I mean, it's an, it's an important volume. I'm sorry, BJ, I just well, throw that in there. Yeah, absolutely, and particularly as we approach the centenary of our entry into World War One, uh, it's it's going to be, you know, that the naval story of World War One is is not well understood in the general public, you know, in the general history community. Um, the importance of that that anti-submarine campaign and the importance of that first battle of the of the Atlantic, you know, arguably Pershing and the expeditionary force they don't get to Europe unless we solve the U-boat problem. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty significant uh, part of the history. Uh, it's also worth noting that Sims won the Pulitzer Prize for that book. Yes. Um, I mean, it, it, it was recognized at the time for being a, a pretty significant historical and literary work. Um, so anyway, I, I read Sims' material, and I approached it with a very similar eye as what I did with the Mahan material. And that was, I looked for articles that, A, were, were readable, that had good structure, uh, that, you know, that a, a reader could sit down with and, and, you know, 
an hour or two in an afternoon could get through pretty easy. And then I looked for the relevance idea. The idea that, um, you know, some of these ideas, some of these concepts that he wrote about, are they relevant to us today in the 21st century? And it turns out that arguably, Sims looks even more relevant than the hand ones, particularly when he writes about, not necessarily strategy, but when he writes about um, kind of naval affairs, when he writes about what it's like to be a military officer, when he writes about professionalism and those subjects. Um, So the articles that I selected for Sims uh, really do kind of leap off the page at you as, you know, as a naval officer who's, you know, approaching a, a world where we've just come out of a pair of long wars well, out of is a relative statement, but we've just come out of a pair of long, long wars. Uh, we have rising powers around the world. We have growing naval expenditures in other parts of the globe. Um, and we have some talent management issues in the Navy and in the military as a whole. We have budget challenges that we're facing. All of these things are things that William Sims wrote about. Right. Uh, so, so he can help us form our questions to approach our challenges today. Great. You know, at the end of your introduction to Mahan, you observe, and I'm going to read the, the single line quote here, the world of Mahan is today. Now, that seems to be a rather bold assertion. You know, you know you're dealing with somebody who had served in the American Civil War and whose primary interest and experience was with wind and steam-powered vessels. How is today's world Mahan's? So that's a it's a great question. From the from the geostrategic point of view, Mahan started writing and and really kind of got into his his intellectual phase of his life and career at a time when the world was experiencing kind of rapid globalization. Mm-hmm. You know, to use today's terminology, right? Steam power was changing the speed with which goods and military forces and news traveled the world. Uh, the, the introduction of underwater telegraph cables, and then towards the end of Mahan's life, the introduction of wireless radio technology was changing the speed of communication in an exponential way. Um, and so when today, in the 21st century, we talk about how, how the speed of communication is so much different than it ever was before, well, that's true, but that magnitude of change was felt 100 years ago when we introduced new communications technologies as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk about how the speed of, of globalization, you know, the, you know, Thomas Friedman, the world is flat. Mahan wrote about those very same issues a hundred years ago. Now it was, you know, if you, if you want to treat it like a math problem, yes, the order of magnitude may appear a little bit different in the speeds slash the flatness of the world. But to them, it felt just as revolutionary as it feels to us today. To them, it felt just as complex and new Mm -hmm. as it does to us today. Right. And so while the, well, you know, a great example is Mahan never really wrote about aircraft. He mentions them once in the introduction of one of his books, kind of saying, 
hey, look, in the future, this is one of those technologies that we're going to have to account for. But he never really talks about it. And so there are many out there who will tell you that Mahan is not relevant today because he didn't talk about aviation. He didn't talk about precision-guided munitions and what they do to the battle space. And he was focused on battleships, and we don't have those anymore. Mm-hmm. But that completely misses the point of reading history and of reading Mahan well, if you're going to focus on those kinds of things. Right, that applies a presentist outlook to to the analysis of the past. And really what we should be focused on is how they dealt with the technological challenges that they were aware of or comfortable with. You know, I have to agree yeah. with you there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, Mahan, like you pointed out, he transitioned that, you know, naval period of starting service before the Civil War, just just the year before the Civil War, mm-hmm. but serving in sailing ships and then moving to steamships, fully armored with big guns. I mean, naval warfare fundamentally changed. Mm-hmm. And if you want to tell me that Mahan didn't understand technology because he wrote about the age of sail and the influence of sea power upon history. I don't think that's fair to him and his actual life biography of, of having gone through this as a naval officer and having to adapt the way he pursued his profession because of it. Right. Well, that would be the same as saying Clausewitz is irrelevant because he didn't account for armor or for munitions in, on the land battlefield. It's just a, a specious question or specious statement, rather, I would think. Alternatively, you present Sims as being, again, using your quote here, insurgent or intellectual. Now, of course, we know about his experience as the gun doctor. Uh, and I, I don't want to rehash that. But I do want to p- note that that simple label implies something about the process of technical and tactical innovation within a very traditionalist institution. Can you elaborate on that, you know, particularly from Sims' perspective? Right. Sims, when he was the, when he came back from World War I, he served a second term as the president of the Naval War College. And in one of his lectures that he turned into a proceedings article that's, that's collected here in the book, mm-hmm. it was titled Military Conservatism. And it's really all about this kind of fundamental question of how do you overcome a culture and a system, the military, that is kind of by nature conservative and set in its ways. Um, and, and Sims goes through a long history of discussing new technologies and new ways of fighting and showing how, you know, almost at every step, the traditionalist conservative majority fought against the introduction of steam power, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, the introduction of, of heavy armor to ships even goes all the way back to talking about the introduction of the longbow and the crossbow um, and, and the cultural pushback that even those early weapons experienced uh, within, within kind of organized fighting forces. Um, and so his, his discussion of this conservatism and what it is required to overcome it within a military force is really kind of interesting. He, I mean, he experienced this, as you pointed out, he experienced this himself when he tried to introduce it to the USA Empire. Uh, you know, he wrote 13 reports to the Bureau of Ordnance, almost all of which were ignored. 
until they finally decided that they were going to fake a test to prove that he was wrong. Um, so, you know, he had seen the beast that was the bureaucracy, you know, uh, and th- what I like about Sims' biographical example when it comes to innovation within the military is that we can see him at, at different seniority levels doing the things that you would hope that officers or senior leaders would be doing. So as a junior officer, he's being that insurgent. He is fighting for this new idea that he thinks is right. And, and even doing things that he admitted later were, quote, the rankest kind of insubordination, unquote. Um, but then once he gets more senior, once he's a commander at the Naval War College as a student and then as an instructor in the, the about eight, or 1911 to 1913 period, he's trying to not only develop himself, but develop those other officers around him to think critically, to be able to recognize new ideas and new uh, military technologies that are of value. And then you see him as a, as a captain, as the commander of the destroyer flotilla in the Atlantic fleet. And now he's the guy kind of on the top of the organization who's looking for lieutenants who have good ideas so he can nurture those good ideas. So he can help make sure that they get developed and, and they figure out which ones are good and which ones aren't. And they can develop the, the tactics and the techniques and the procedures for these new destroyers, which is, at that point in history, a relatively new class of warship. And then you see him go off to command in World War I, where he's, you know, the pinnacle of naval leadership at that point, right? He, he is the commander of all naval, U.S. naval forces in the war. And what does he do? He looks to the lieutenants and lieutenant commanders that are the skippers of the destroyers. Mm-hmm. And the Admiralty had been saying, no, we can't convoy ships. We just don't have enough. I know you lieutenants think this is a good idea, but no, we're not going to do it. And Sims shows up and he sides with the lieutenants. He sides with the junior officers and says, I think these guys can do it. I think they can beat the U-boats. Let's let them have it. I'll bring my destroyers, the American ones, and add them to yours so we, you've got enough forces. But let's let them give it a try. And sure enough, it works. But it wasn't his idea. At this point, he's the senior officer who's who is encouraging and incubating the innovations and the good ideas at junior levels. I I think that biographical example is hugely important for us today because it tends to be those, those, you know, captains, commanders, senior officers in the Navy today that get stuck in the bureaucracy that end up wanting the power of the veto. and, And they should be the ones encouraging people today. Right. Well, you know, that's interesting because it does bring me up to a theme which I thought was was important. And this, of course, is about innate conservatism within institutions. Um, you know, in the case, in the historical case you're talking about, but also I, I think in the evolution of the Navy as an institution, what do you think from your read of Sims and Mahan and others? First, you know, well, first, what's the basis for this conservatism? Is it the culture of the institution itself, or is it the individual who gravitates to their position within the culture? You know, is it institutional or is it personal? I, you know, that's a really interesting observation. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think that 
part of the individual element is also um, is also fed by the culture, and I'll explain that. So I do think that overall culturally, and this goes back to our, our initial discussion of you know, the place of history in the education of our officers in in the Navy, and the fact that we have been a technocratic service almost since the founding. Right. You know, when the initial debates started about whether or not to establish a naval academy. There were many in the service who said, how could you possibly ever teach anyone to be a naval officer on land? Mm -hmm. They have to be on a ship. They have to be hands-on with the technical elements of the job. Um, And going all the way through to today, we are still a very technological and forward-thinking, which can be a very good thing, Mm -hmm. but we're a forward-thinking organization that does not tend to look at our past very much. Um, and I, and despite that, we get set in our ways. It's an interesting dichotomy, right? So we're a forward thinking technological organization, but despite that, we like to have things the way we know them. This is what worked for me on a personal level. So this is where your personal comes into it. You know, I, I think arguably human beings in general tend to be relatively conservative when it comes to, you know, once they've got a comfort zone, they kind of like it, and they don't want a whole lot to change. Right. Um, now, when it comes to the your point about, you know, the officers or the, the individuals that are drawn to the service, we also tend to cultivate them in the way our promotion system works. Mm-hmm. Um, one, of the, one of the essays in the Sims book is, is his observations on, promotion boards and selection boards, which were a relatively new thing in the World War I era. It was, it was only the Naval Personnel Act of 1916 that first introduces promotion by selection instead of purely time and rank. It had always been, that's why they called it waiting for dead men's shoes, the promotion system before that, because everyone had a number, and if someone retired or died, everyone moved up one. And that's how you got promoted. And, and then promotion by selection was instituted. And Sims has this wonderful essay about having watched that be instituted. It had been happening for about a decade, a little bit less than a decade at that point. And he wrote an essay saying, hey, these are some of the things that we, we might want to think about to make this better. This might not really be working that well. And he, he doesn't use the phrase that we use today, but he gets to the heart of something that we call the ducks pick ducks mentality. And that is officers go in and sit on a promotion board. They have a record. They have records put in front of them of the potential officers who might promote to the next level. And who are they going to pick as thinking the one, these are the ones who are best suited to move to senior levels. They're probably going to pick people who look like them. Yeah, like-minded who had similar. Yes. They're going to they're gonna pick like-minded figures. They're going to pick people with similar experiences to them because, look, I got here, and if this works for me, that guy, because he looks a lot like me, should be able to do my job really well, too. You know, that's interesting because, I mean, I think it's fair to say that perhaps in their case they may have experienced a paradigmatic shift or they may represent – I'm talking about the person sitting on the board. Their career right. may, may have had benefited from thinking new. But then when they become institutionalized or they be, their, their thinking becomes institutionalized, what you're saying then is that they settle into 
their ideas of innovation as being innovation across time. When in reality, you know, their innovations come and gone. Their moment of yes. innovation has come and gone. Yes, exactly. And, and if you look at, as I talked about Sims' biography, it was his ability to recognize that. And he even says in his military conservatism essay that he has been guilty of being that guy, of being that senior officer who said, no, no that's not the way we do things. And then he had to, you know, correct himself and realize, yeah, no, that's not the way we do things because we shouldn't be doing them always the same way. So, so I need to go back and and look at that new idea again. Right. Makes me almost want to ask, how did he come down in the Billy Mitchell controversy? But we'll save that for another interview, I think. Let me ask you, stepping back to the two together, did the two men ever meet Sims and Mahan? Yep. They, they met. Uh, very early on in Sims's career, when he was a first-class midshipman here in Annapolis, um, he uh, Sims got uh, mouthy with the duty officer one night, and uh, Commander Mahan, who was the head of the gunnery department at the Naval Academy at the time, happened to be nearby and heard the kerfuffle and wrote up midshipman Sims uh, for being insubordinate to the duty officer. Um, this This would have been... 1879, 1880-ish. Um, so very early on in Sims' career, and quite frankly, about the time Mahan was starting to get his legs under him as a thinker. Right. His very first article for publication was published during this time that he was in Annapolis as the head of the gunnery department um, when he wrote his essay, Naval Education, which is in, in the Mahan book, all about how to properly build a curriculum for the academy, how to educate naval officers. It's a very humanities and liberal arts-focused ideal uh, Mm -hmm. that he writes about. Um, And this is the very first article, very first thing he ever wrote for publication. It was published in Proceedings. It got third place in the General Cries essay contest that year. Um, And so, yes, they they ran into each other then. Later on in their career, they also had another run-in, and this is in the Sims book, uh, they had a debate in proceedings. Mm-hmm. After the Battle of Tsushima, Mahan was asked to write an article mm-hmm. pulling lessons for, for the future of naval warfare from the Battle of Tsushima during the Russo-Japanese War. Um, and he did. He wrote an article that appeared in, uh, I think it was 1905. It's in the book. I'd have to, have to look it up. Right. Um, so he, he writes this article in which he comes to the conclusion that a properly designed battleship fleet is made up of numerous battleships of moderate size and speed. Um, And Sims writes an article that appears about six months later. Now, he's a lieutenant commander at this point. Mahan is retired. Uh, And Sims, the lieutenant commander, takes on the great navalist of the age and says, you know what? Mahan's wrong. Flat out, he is wrong. That's not how you should design a fleet. And the Battle of Tsushima actually tells us that a, a battleship fleet should be made up of as many large battleships that are as heavily armored and fast and big-gunned as possible, even if that means you, you have fewer of them because they're more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are kind of fundamental fleet constitution questions here. Uh, and since is coming down on the side of the, what would be the next year, the Brits would launch Dreadnought. 
mm-hmm. which which was the epitome of that all big gun battleship ideal. Um, and Sims was in that camp 100%. And so the future of naval warfare definitely went in Sims' direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had this exchange in the pages of proceedings where the, the upstart lieutenant commander took on the great navalist, the, the great retired officer who who was recognized throughout the world as being the naval strategist. And it's a, it's a very interesting example of that junior officer with ideas doing the hard work of the real research to write an article and, and set it out properly so that he can defend his ideas. Right. Well, what's fortunate, too, that by this point he was, you know, he had achieved his reforms in naval gunnery because I would think that if he didn't have some credentials behind him or some something to, to point toward as an accomplishment. That type of, ins- well, the hand's retired at that point, but nevertheless, that type of insubordination towards uh, what could be perceived as insubordination towards the great Mahan, that could have been a career ender for Sims. Well, yes and no. So there's a couple of interesting, you know, points there. The first one is, while Mahan was the great navalist, at that point, many of Mahan's peers were still in uniform or those who were kind of just barely junior to him. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't a particularly popular guy. No, he wasn't. No. In the Navy. You know, so taking on Mahan in and of itself, there were certain elements in uniform in the Navy who would have seen that as being wonderful mm-hmm. because they'd love to take that retired guy down a notch who thinks he knows so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of that. I think it's also important to point out that Sims's article um, on the inherent uh, qualities of all big gun battleships actually started out as a letter to President Roosevelt because President Roosevelt asked Sims what he thought of Mahan's piece. Right, right. And so Sims wrote a letter to Roosevelt, you know, kind of broad brush outlining the problems he saw with Mahan's piece, and Roosevelt told him, you know, you really ought to turn this into an article for proceedings. Mm-hmm. So when the president tells you you ought to tell Mahan he's wrong, you got a little bit of a, a backstop there. <laughs> Raises another question, or brings the third man into the room, being Theodore Roosevelt. You know, it is interesting, I think, that you have someone like Roosevelt who is in both men's careers and who really paves the way for them to reach the heights of command that they, they enjoy and influence that they enjoy, which then raises a question. In the midst of focus on Mahan, and now to a lesser extent Sims, are we neglecting TR's role, not as the president, but as a naval reformer and thinker? I do think that, that TR's role is incredibly important. And, and Captain Jerry Hendricks, uh, Dr. Hendricks, who's now a senior fellow at the Center for New American Security, published a book a, a couple of years ago entitled Teddy Roosevelt's Naval Diplomacy, or Theodore Roosevelt's Naval Diplomacy. That's uh, a great study in, in Roosevelt's navalism, um, because he was hugely important to the U.S. Navy, and, and as you point out, hugely important to both these individuals. Now, in kind of different ways, because the Mahan that Roosevelt knew was the thinker, the war college professor, the retired officer. Right. Um, Mahan and, and 
Roosevelt really did not become friendly correspondents until that late stage in the hand's career. He wasn't helping him get promoted, get commands, you know, achieve great things in uniform. It was the intellectual side that those two were engaged with. Whereas Sims was very much um, helped by Roosevelt in terms of his naval career, in terms of his in-uniform promotion and selection for certain jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I think it's probably worth pointing out that Sims had a pretty good relationship with Franklin Roosevelt as well. Yeah, because seen, FDR seen. was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy during World War I. Um, and there's some wonderful pictures of the two of them in London together, mm-hmm. the young Roosevelt and Sims. Um, and so, yeah, and, and Sims had, coming out of World War One, Sims had a bit of a conflict with the Daniels. Josephus Daniels was the Secretary of the Navy, and he had a bit of a conflict with him and the Daniels administration of the Navy during World War One. It came to a head during some congressional hearings following the war when Sims was president of the War College. He was called to testify. And during this period, FDR, interestingly, becomes the middleman between the uniforms and the political secretary of the Navy. And FDR is the one trying to make things still work, even though you know the, the uniforms aren't happy with the, the secretary, and the secretary is not really happy with the uniforms. FDR knows all these people many of the junior, not junior, but more junior officers, the commanders and the captains that FDR meets during this period will end up playing significant roles in the run-up to World War II or in World War II. Guys like Ernie King. Right. Um, guys like Dudley Knox. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the Roosevelt family has a very strong naval element to their, to their interests and expertise that is really important in, in the founding of the American century. Mm-hmm. You know, the, in, in America's rise as a great power is because, arguably because the Roosevelt's understood that that meant being a naval power. Right. Shifting direction a little bit, you compare Mahan's presentation of defense being assured only by offensive action. And, you know, his views on the need for a balanced fleet, you know, they're almost Clausewitzian in their nature. Well, first I want to ask if this is the case, if you think that there's a, a tacit influence of Clausewitz in Mahan's work. And if so, how do we see this mindset of defense being assured by offense applied in more recent years? I think that there is a, a parallel, there's a lot of similarity between things that Clausewitz wrote and, and things that Mahan wrote. Now, Mahan says that he didn't read on war until way late. You know, he was already into the 20th century before he read on war. And he was, admittedly, you know, he was his father's son. His father, Dennis Hart Mahan, um, who was a noted professor at West Point and was a, you know, he, he taught Germany at West Point. Yeah. He taught strategy at West Point to the Civil War generation of generals, most of whom had Dennis Hart Mahan as a professor in the strategy class and in the engineering classes. Um, and so Sims admittedly, or I'm sorry, Mahan admittedly started with Germany because, you know, he was in that period in the late 19th century, 
Germany was much more popular than Clausewitz was yeah. as a as a text, as a as part of professional military education. Granted, that kind of makes sense. I was going to say, granted, in in English circles, of course, or English language circles, this was because of an inadequate translation. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, and so Mahan, obviously, it's because of that that Mahan starts with Germany, but he ends up kind of moving away from many of the more prescriptive elements of Germany's approach to military strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's in moving away from that that I think we start to see things that echo what Clausewitz wrote about many elements of warfare. Right. I do think that it's important to draw out the differences between the two also. And, and that is that Mahan, you know, one of the more fundamental ones is the difference between naval warfare and what in the late 19th century was called military operations, right? Because then naval and military meant different things. The military was ground forces. Mm-hmm. And so military strategy versus naval strategy. You know, in military strategy, in, in the tactical realm, the defense was stronger. The offense was weaker. Mm-hmm. And then in the operational, it was the inverse, right? The operational, the offense was stronger, the defense was weaker. Now, Mahan wrote that in naval warfare, it was the opposite. That at the tactical level, the offense was stronger in naval warfare. You know, he who shoots first wins. He who hits first, arguably, wins, but... Right? So um, there's that inverse relationship at the tactical and operational level that will certainly have impacts at the strategic level that I think is lost in much of the writing on military strategy today because, because of our quote-unquote joint nature mm-hmm. today, we tend to think of things as being all the same. They all follow the same basic principles of war. And, and, you know, Mahan says that's not really true. And particularly in his book, uh, Naval Strategy Compared and Contrasted with Military Strategy, the, he specifically says, look, these things are different at the tactical, operations, strategic levels. And if you don't recognize that, you're going to set yourself up for failures. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of German intellectual influences, you know, we're talking about Clausewitz and Mahan. You also note how in a 1916 lecture on leadership, Sims employed a framework um, we, under, we come to understand today as Auftragstaktik, which you translate as mission command. How so? How do we see this? So the, the lecture that you're talking about was given, like you said, 1916. It was in the run-up to World War I, the Navy kind of recognized that mass mobilization was a likely reality in the coming despite the fact that the president continued to say that we were a neutral power and that we weren't going to get involved in the war and American support for entry into the war was kind of squishy. The Navy was looking towards the future and saying, we need to be ready for this. And so they started something called the Naval Volunteers in which they brought in for lectures and about a week at sea on a ship, just get a feel for what it was like. People who were men who were interested in the Navy, if we were to go to war, these are the folks who would probably line up recruiting people first to join the Navy. And they asked Sims to give this lecture on, on 
Military Character was the title he was given. It was, it was basically a leadership lesson, and he was given credit card blanche to write about whatever he, or lecture on whatever he wanted. And he pointed out that, for the most part, most of these kinds of lectures are given looking at the great captains, you know, Napoleon, Nelson, the greats of military history and what they teach us for military leadership. But he wanted to have a completely different focus. He wanted to look at the junior officer. He wanted to look at the non-commissioned officer. And he wanted lessons for them. And he fell back on what today we term as mission command um, and, and talked about the relationships they're in. You know, the, much of what is talked today about mission command, um, it, you know, it's a, a popular subject. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dempsey, talks about it a great deal. There's a uh, joint leadership publication on it that has come out in the military. Um, the, the idea being that this is a preferred leadership style that military officers should be following today. But much of the writing focuses on the need for the senior officer to trust his subordinates. And Sims kind of turns that on its head. He talks about the subordinates and what they owe to the senior officer, which, which in a period today where lots of junior officers get online and, and write in online journals or on blogs about leadership and about their future in the military or whether or not they're staying or going, many of them kind of forget this element of their role in mission command. I mean, this is a holistic thing. This isn't just something that senior officers do for their juniors. And so in the essay, Sims talks about for the, for the junior officer, for the NCO, this balance between the officer's desire to execute their own initiative, to follow their good idea, and their loyalty to their boss or their organization. Mm-hmm. And Sims gets into the idea that this, this balancing act, this tension between initiative and loyalty, is the foundation of mission command. You know, trust from the seniors is very important. The seniors have to properly give the orders. They have to, you know, make sure commander's intent is understood, all that kind of stuff. Great. But this tension between initiative and loyalty is a fundamental question here. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to read this article today because, like I said, it's not really talked about in our modern conception of mission command. And it helps round out that the view of what that style of leadership in command can mean for us. Right. Well, it certainly would help to you know, be able to call upon this and other antecedents to make the case for greater flexibility in command, which, again, you point out, you know, the institution not necessarily being historically grounded, that becomes a difficult task, um, which, again, I think speaks towards the value of your work, I would hope, on the institution and the establishment. I think it's important to point out, as I, as I mentioned earlier, that just because it appears sometimes that, that the military bureaucracy doesn't necessarily always seem to value historical study, there is a great appetite out there amongst military officers yes. for good military history. Yeah. Um, I, I've had some incredible experiences in the last couple of years, um, particularly, you know, I'll give you an example. I spoke at the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum at the University of Chicago the past two years. And this is a conference where mostly junior officers and mid-grade officers, a few non-commissioned officers, 
come together with junior members of the defense establishment and junior members of the academy to hold a weekend-long conference on defense innovation today. And I've been invited for the past two years to come give keynote talks on you know, examples of history and innovation. And the first year I gave a SIMS-related talk. Last year I gave a talk on the Marine Corps' adoption of helicopters and what we might learn from that. And my talks are incredibly popular. The, the, there is a great appetite for the lessons of the past, not necessarily in a prescriptive way, not in a checklist style, if they did X before, we will do X this time and it will work. Well, that's not the role instead, of history anyway, to, to present exactly. a checklist. But they, these, these military audience members, they get the idea that, no, what we're doing is we're shaping our questions today. Right. We're using the history to inform how we approach the subject, not the solutions we get, but how we ask the questions. Right. And the appetite for, for good military history is certainly out there. I think something we need to remember as a field, as military historians, is that we shouldn't always be writing for each other, for ourselves. We need to write for that other audience as well. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the way we write for ourselves as academics and the way we write for each other, uses language and assumes certain conclusions and knowledge, certain implicit things mm-hmm. that your average junior officer who does not have a grounding in the academic pursuit of history, he's not, or he or she is not necessarily going to understand and probably is going to put down the book. Right. Well, frankly, too, the, the conventions of relevant. the, I'm sorry, the conventions of the form, too, you know, of writing for an academic audience will certainly put off a lot of lay readers, you know, who just don't have time for or the patience to deal with the the way that academic historians or academic texts have to name check along the way and, and prove and develop their uh, their own legacy. Yep. Um, I think that's it, the two things don't have to be in conflict, right? We can write our academic work for for the academic audience the way it's kind of expected to be. But that doesn't mean you can't then take the things you wrote about in that, say, peer-reviewed journal article mm-hmm. and write an article for, you know, for an online journal or for a blog, kind of summarizing it and making it relevant for a non-specialist reader. Right. It's kind of like I was talking about with Mahan, right? Like, yeah. he wrote these books for the specialists, and nobody can get through them. But he wrote articles for magazines and journals that tend to be more readable and seem more relevant to us today. And I think it's a good lesson that we as historians can learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, speaking of Mahan again, return it back to Mahan. You know, I find his position on China and Asia to be very interesting. You know, but at the same time, it's very 19th century in orientation. You know, which, you know, talking about leading up to the open door policy of the Taft administration and, and America's obsession with the China market. This kind of raises the question is, I think many of us limit our appreciation of Mahan strictly to naval affairs. Shouldn't we be thinking more as articulating national strategy? I think that's an excellent observation. And it's something that, in the, in the title of this book, it's something that I mentioned John Sumita's book earlier, Inventing Grand Strategy and Teaching Command. And it's something that he says in that book, you know, that Mahan is arguably the first global grand strategist who writes about, you know, national strategy at that level. Um, And so I do think that he is 
less well recognized in that regard. It's one of the one of the things that his writing, particularly in the latter part of his his career, like the last ten years or so of his life, it really tended to focus on. Maybe fifteen years. He wrote a number of articles around the turn of the century. Uh, I'm thinking of articles like uh, a twentieth century outlook or America looking outward um, that talk about how a how a, a nation should interact with a globalized world and the kinds of military challenges, diplomatic challenges, and economic challenges a globalized world presents for a nation. Mm-hmm. And he, he links those three things, the military, the diplomatic or political, and the economic, um, in a way that, you know, we, we talk about Clausewitz's trinity, um, but Clausewitz really isn't writing on the, the global strategy scale. It can be, we can read Clausewitz, and we can learn lessons that can be applied in that way, but that's not what he was writing about. Right, Mahan was writing about that, and, and that that connection between the military, the diplomatic, and the economic, and how it's—I believe the phrase he uses is—it's an articulated whole. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it really is a look at what today we call right the, the interagency or the holistic strategies mm-hmm. um, that really wasn't written about prior to Mahan's thinking on it. You also raised an, an interesting point in terms of kind of his place in history, um, period-wise. You know, one, one of the one of the criticisms that I've received for the book was that I did not uh, state that flat out that Mahan was a racist uh, in the way right. that he wrote. Right. And and while I think that he, that's the fair criticism, I did not say it. I also think that maybe that's not giving enough. Um, context to the time and place where Mahan lived. You know, a, a, a man who was born before the Civil War to a Virginia family um, and who served in the Civil War is probably not going to use the kind of language in terms of political meaning and cultural meaning to the language that we use today. Necessarily right. fair contextually for us to try and apply today's standards to some of the things that he wrote about in that regard. And and it also illustrates, back to the books, it does illustrate something about these books that I think your readers might appreciate, and that is the fact that these are not biographies. I have not written a biography of Alfred Thayer Mahan or a biography of William Sims. These are collections of primary sources for us to go back to and read and learn from. Now, I've added some introduction. I've tried to add some I was going to say, to be fair, you are contextualizing each of these in, in, in their own right, though. So Yes, yes. So I've tried to add something, right? It's not just purely their writings. I've tried to add some context and some information to help frame what's here. But my, my intention is not to claim to be a biographer of Sims or a biographer of Mahan. I'm more interested kind of in the intellectual history here of these men and their ideas and what they can help teach us today. Right. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about larger purposes and audiences for the books. And I, I would include with this as well, the companion volume that B.A. Friedman has written about Marine Lieutenant Colonel Earl Hancock, Pete Ellis. Um, and I, I think the larger question is, do you think the general public 
really understands naval affairs and policy? That's the first part of the question. So that's kind of a, that's a loaded question. Um, because the general public is such a kind of squishy term. Well, I, I think the, your average, the, the average, I think reader. your average, I think your average American probably does not really have an understanding of the maritime nature of our country and our place in the world. And then by not understanding that maritime nature, you then, you don't understand the importance of the Navy. Like you, if you look at, it hasn't changed much. Mahan writes about, and what not, not one of the essays that I've included in the book, but in another one, he writes about the fact that um, at the turn of the century, the Army had twice as many men as the Navy did. And the American people believed that the Army was the most important uh, in, institution for national defense. And this is despite the fact that we had peace on our Canadian and Mexican border at that point and no real prospect of problems. And the nations that we had problems with were across an ocean that the Navy wasn't seen as important. Mm -hmm. And today we're in a similar position. Recent polls by Pew and others show that, you know, the army and the Marine Corps are generally seen as more important. The air force seen as more important for national defense than the Navy. is. Um, now part of this is the Navy suffering from physical location. Mm -hmm. When we do what we do, we tend to be very far away from home. Sure. And American people don't see us. They don't see what we're doing. And the news media doesn't see what we're doing either, because they're certainly not out in the middle of the Pacific or the middle of the Indian Ocean covering us. Right. Um, so I do think that there's a certain element of, and the phrase that the many Brits use is sea blindness. Right. There's a certain element of sea blindness within the American body politic these days. Um, because, you know, Tom Friedman and others have told us that the world is flat and we're all so closer together, so, you know, the oceans aren't that big, are they? Well, until you go actually try and sail across an ocean and realize how big yeah. it actually is. Um, so I do think that in a larger sense, the American people tend, tend not to have a full appreciation, A, of the maritime nature of our place in the world, but B, of the importance of the Navy to, to the nation. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a matter of scale. It's not that they don't think it's important. They, they might not understand all the elements of it. Though. Well, now, for, for your average reader, these are admittedly niche books. Right? I don't expect either of these books to come anywhere near anybody's bestseller list. Um, but for, for that audience of military officers, those interested in naval and military history, and those interested in strategy, you know, military affairs, kind of, these, these books offer us something that has, has been missing recently, and that is the original source work. You know, these days we love to go read summaries of things. We love to, to read book reviews um, rather than the books themselves. And, and my thinking here is, you know, rather than, rather than offer huge tomes that someone ought to go read, maybe an approachable small book. I mean, if you notice, these books are about 200 pages long. Mm -hmm. They're meant to be digested relatively quickly. They're, they're not meant to be definitive, you know, in terms of all-encompassing. The idea here is to offer some of the thinkers of the past in their own words. 
And, and you pointed out Brett's wonderful book on Pete Ellis. That's um, the third in the series, and we've we've started a series at the Naval Institute Press. They've signed me on as series editor, and we're going to pursue this uh, this model across a number of thinkers over the next couple of years. And so these three, Mahan, Sims, and Ellis, are just the introduction. Uh, we have two more under contract, and, and we're going to shoot for maybe two books a year um, over the next couple of years. The, the whole idea being, the, you know, big data is a buzzword that's out there today. There's a, our ability to get data mm-hmm. is massive, right? But the data is meaningless unless a historian can bring it together and give us context and give us the reason why these particular pieces of data might be collected well together. Um, there's all these essays, articles, think pieces that are stuck in archives and stuck in libraries that no one ever looks at mm-hmm. that are kind of formative to our world and our worldview and military strategy and all these different subjects. And so the ability to bring some of these articles and essays together and provide them in a, in a approachable, digestible product for the reader is, is the goal of what we're shooting for here. Great. Well, BJ, we're closing in on the end of time for our interview. And uh, it's at that point when we, I ask our customary final questions. First, what are you reading these days that you think is worth sharing with our audience? Now, so right now I am in the midst of finishing uh, two biographies, one on David Porter uh, and one on um, Farragut. Uh, both of which are interests of mine, but also, you know, associated with my, my uh, PhD work. Uh, much of my reading these days is focused on, on the reading list for the, for the studies. Yeah, shame um, so, on me for asking the question. Of course I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I, don't know that, I don't know that I'm a really great example of, of giving good recommendations. I will say... Um, when, when a junior officer approaches me and says, you know, what's one book that I ought to read that I probably haven't as a starting point with good naval history to get them interested? And my answer almost always, um, and, you know, I tailor it for the individuals asking, but my answer almost always is Craig Simon's book, Decision at Sea, yeah. which is the five naval battles that shaped American history. I think it's an absolutely incredible book because... Uh, you know, and and, and um, all honesty, Dr. Simons was a professor of mine when I was at the Naval Academy. Um, but the way he brings academic rigor to a writing style that's almost novelistic uh, is just fantastic. And it's it's a great book. It's incredibly easy to read and has some fantastic history. That's a good recommendation. Really, it is. Second question. And I kind of know the answer to this as well, but again, for our listeners, what's next on the slate for you, academically speaking? Um, of course, you're pursuing your doctorate. Are you prepared to share your dissertation thoughts? Or Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm pursuing a I'm reading for my Ph.D. with King's College London with the War Studies Department, uh, studying with Andrew Lambert. And uh, I'm working on a study of Naval, U.S. naval history in the age of sail with a focus on what today we would call naval irregular warfare or maritime security operations. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being generally the, the history written about 
the age of sail period in the U.S. Navy, tends to focus on the blue water. Uh, it tends to focus on, you know, in the War of 1812, we talked about the frigate duels and we talked about the squadrons on the lakes. Um, even, even in the American Revolution, we talked about whether or not we could build the, fr- the 13 frigates or, or not, which ones got burned, which ones got lost, and we talked about John Paul Jones and Serapis, Bonham Richard versus Serapis. Um, much of the naval history written, you know, kind of across American history tends to have this focus on the big blue water battle. It's, it's us looking through our Mahanian lens. Even, even the Sprouts admit it in their introduction to their second edition. Um, so my, my purpose in my research is to go back to that age of sail period, roughly starting at the Revolution and going to about the start of the Mexican War, just shy of the start of the Mexican War, and look for examples of the kinds of operations that the Navy actually did on a day-to-day basis, not major power conflict, not wars, but, you know, counter-piracy operations and counter-smuggling operations and, and maybe some anti-slavery patrol stories and things like that. And I've, I've picked out some case studies because covering that entire period would be prohibitive. Sure. Um, but I've picked out some case studies um, of historical examples of operations conducted during that period that would be in this, in today's label of maritime security operations or naval irregular warfare. And, and going into the archives and researching these down to, down to the beach, down to the, the, uh, the gun decks, um, to tell the stories of these kinds of operations, and then to compare the operations to each other to see if there, is, you know, if there are common threads amongst how these operations are conducted, what kinds of leaders have success in them, um, you know, why, why these are, why these quote-unquote lesser included tend to be actually more numerous than the big battles. Okay. I'm looking forward to seeing that when it reaches book length or reaches a monograph stage. <laughs> I'm looking uh, forward to it also, but it's going to be a little while. <laughs> yeah. Well, at that point it's done. And as I say, the best dissertation is the done dissertation. That's so. right. BJ, thanks for taking the time to join us today at, at New Books in Military History. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, no problem. And for all of our listeners, this is your host, Bob Winterbeach, signing off. Thank you for listening.